0: Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3? Romans 3. I ran across a Peanuts comic strip yesterday that caught my attention. I know not all of you here are familiar with Peanuts comic strips, but most of you will, so get the image in your mind. It's Linus and Lucy sitting beside one another. And Linus opens, saying to Lucy, Why are you always so anxious to criticize me? Lucy replies, I think I just have a knack for seeing other people's faults. To which Linus retorts with great expression, What about your own faults? Then Lucy, in classic form, says, I have a knack for overlooking them. I wonder if we're similar to Lucy in the church. Pretty anxious to criticize the sins in our culture. We're aghast when we encounter what we see happening in our world. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We have a knack for seeing other people's faults. But do we also have a knack like Lucy for overlooking our own. I'm not denying that the sins in our culture are great. In my sermon two weeks ago, Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, I spoke extensively about them. But we also need to come to grasp the depths of our own sins. That's what Paul is driving home in his address in these first few chapters as he talks to the Jews. Jordan Cron last week drew our attention to a very helpful parable, the parable of the prodigal son. It's so obvious that the younger brother was lost. He left town. He left his father and went into a distant country where he squandered everything in reckless living and flagrant sin. But there were two brothers. (laughs) What about the older brother, the one who stayed home in his father's house? Jesus uses this parable to teach us that the older brother was lost too. He also needed restored to the Father. But here's the thing. It's easier for younger brothers to see their sin and the need of the Father's grace because their sin is obvious for everyone to see. But it is much harder for older brothers, to use a term, to see their need. Those who stay home Those who stay in the church. But we all need to see our need. That's what Paul's been trying to drive home since chapter 1, verse 18. He started in the opening section, verses one to 17 of chapter 1, of announcing that this letter was going to be about the gospel of God. That's the topic. That's the main thing. It's about the good news of what Jesus has done to save sinners. But before Paul explains how God saves sinners, he has to establish that we need saving. Before he launches into the good news, he needs to make sure that we understand personally, experientially, the bad news. Before he shows us the righteousness of God revealed through faith in Jesus Christ, he has to make sure that we understand that the wrath of God has also been revealed against the unrighteousness of man. We all need to see our need. And seeing our need is especially difficult for people like the older brothers. Seeing our need was especially difficult for the people like the Jews. That's why he spends more time trying to expose their need than he did even exposing the sins of the Gentiles. Is that because the Jews were more sinful than the Gentiles? No. It's simply because it was harder for them to see their need. And it is harder for many of us in this room who have spent most of our life in the church to see our need. Why is that? Well, think about the Jews, since that's who Paul is addressing directly. They had a lot of privileges. As verse 2 says, They had the oracles of God. That is the promises of God, the law of God. They were visibly identified through circumcision as the people of God. They followed many of the rules of God that were laid out for them in the Mosaic covenant. By all outward appearances, they were doing all right. So it would be easy for them to think that they were pretty good people and overlook the fundamental reality that is true for all of us, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. I think the same is true for those who spend much of their lives in the church. Don't get me wrong. Don't wish for that extravagant testimony of how you lived your life out in a far distant country And came home. It's good to stay home. It's good to be raised in the church. And in a Christian home. Where we have access to the gospel. Where the word is taught. Where we sing the great hymns of the faith. Where people model to us what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. But all of those privileges can blind us to see that we too need grace because we are sinners. We can gradually begin to think that all of these things that we are doing in the church are what have granted us God's favor and made us right with Him. Some can start to think that because they go to an evangelical church or maybe attend a Christian school, That they are better than those who do not. Paul wants you to know that that is a delusion. We are all sinners who need God's grace. And if we're going to understand God's grace, we're gospel people. I mean, we are first evangelical free church. Evangelical means gospel people. But if we are going to understand the gospel of God's grace, we need to see our need. Over the last two weeks, Paul has been pointing this out, establishing this. But this week, he really drives it home in his conclusion to this section. We're all sinners. We need to see it. But to see our need, Paul makes a case. Or not but. In order to establish our need, in order to drive home this point, Paul makes a case. He takes us as readers into a courtroom. So I'm going to give you the layout of the passage before we read it so you can hear it as we go. In verse 9, he brings a charge against all people. Then in verses 10 to 18, he builds his case to back up his charge with a chain of citations from Scripture, mounting evidence. Then in verses 19 to 20, he makes his closing remarks, which close the case. Essentially, he's saying, none of us have a case before God. As I read and explain these verses, I pray that we will all clearly come to see our need for grace, so that we would be amazed God's grace. And maybe grow in our tendency to look down upon others. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans 3 verses 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like I said earlier. What Paul is doing to help us see our need is he's organizing his comments like a court case. He begins by bringing his charge against all humanity. Then he builds his case for this charge by mounting evidence through a string or a chain of citations. And then finally he brings his closing remarks that closes the case Against all people. So let's begin with his charge against all humanity. Look at verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is how I would summarize Paul's charge. We are all guilty of sin and enslaved to sin. Guilty and enslaved. This phrase, under sin, in verse 9, has two connotations. It's, first of all, courtroom language. We know that because he's making a charge. And it means that we are guilty of committing sins. That's what under sin means in the one hand. But it's more than that. It also means that we are enslaved to sin. We see this very clearly as we get to chapter 6 and his repeated use of the word sin. Paul says that before we are saved, we are slaves to sin. Chapter 6, verse 17. He describes salvation in terms of being set free from sin. So, liberation from slavery. No longer having dominion over us he says. So sin is not simply the things that we do wrong. Sin is something more than that. It's not just acts. It's a state of being. Sin is something that has a power over us. Being under sin, we are powerless to not sin. Why does Paul want us to know this? So that we'll be ready for a power outside of us that sets us free from our sin. A power found only in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So this is Paul's charge. We're all guilty of sin and enslaved by sin. But he not only brings a charge, he builds a case for his charge, to drive it home, to prove it. And he does this through a chain of citations from Scripture, mainly the Psalms, also in Isaiah. He's laying down evidence for his case. I've grouped his citations under four points. First, all humanity is completely corrupt. When I say completely Corrupt. I have in mind both the breadth of sin and the depth of sin. Breadth and depth. Wide and deep. The breadth of sin is seen in the repetition that he uses in verses 10 to 12. Let me read them again. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I think he's pretty clear. When the Jews read Paul's letter at the end of chapter 1, they would have all agreed that Gentiles were sinful and rightly under God's wrath. But Paul has also made it clear to them that they are sinful and under God's wrath. All kinds of people are sinful. No group can look down on another group without seeing their own sin. You've heard it said when you point a finger at somebody, you've got three more pointing right back at you. But it's not simply that all kinds of people are sinful. Paul is making an additional point. He's saying all people are sinful. Every individual except Jesus is a sinner, as our statement of faith says, by nature and by choice. So there is a breadth of sin, a universal touch of sin. Everybody has sinned. But Paul also talks about the depth of sin or what theologians call total depravity. There is no passage of Scripture that I can think of that in one place establishes so exhaustively the doctrine of total depravity. Now, total depravity, just to be clear, does not state that we are as bad as we could be. It states that everything about us is shot through with sin all of our faculties, everything that makes us a human, all of those faculties have been affected thoroughly by sin. So that we are animated by sin in all that we do. Somebody once said that if the color of sin, get this in your mind, were blue, every aspect of us would be some shade of blue. Our minds would be blue. Some shade of them. Our wills, our affections, I could go on. They would all be blue. We see this as Paul unfolds his case here. Our minds are shot through with sin. He says, no one understands. He says something similar in a number of other passages in Ephesians chapter 4. He says they are darkened in their understanding. Notice his logic. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. So our sinful hearts lead to a sinful mind that cannot see God rightly, that cannot see ourselves rightly. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And get this, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So our minds are completely corrupt. And so are our motives and our wills. Paul says, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Apart from the Spirit of God, no one wants to seek God. And no one is able to seek God. Unless the Father draws them. Unless the Spirit is at work. Because we are not only guilty of sin, we are enslaved to sin. Finally, our actions are shot through with sin. Out of our hearts and our minds flow our actions. He says, no one does good, not even one. That doesn't mean that nobody ever does anything good. It means that even the good things that we do are shot through with sin. Paul elaborates on actions beginning in verse 13 using two body parts. There's actually a third, but two that I'm going to focus on. Our mouths and our feet to make his point. Man is sinful from head to toe. The use of the mouth shows us that our speech Proves we are sinners. Verse 13. Notice the way that his language moves. You're meant to visualize it. He starts with the throat. Their throat is an open grave. He moves to the tongue. They use their tongues to deceive. Then to the lips. The venom of asps is on their lips. And then he summarizes it with the mouth the mouth is full of bitterness and curses. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's a short version of what Paul is saying here. For those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, their throat is an open grave. And so what proceeds from it? Things that proceed from dead hearts. The words we speak are evidence of our corruption. Do you need evidence that we all sin against God and deserve His righteous judgment apart from Christ? Who hasn't deceived somebody with their words in here? Who hasn't spoken curses or bitter words against someone else, if not directly to them, under their breath. Whether it's the guy who can't utter a single sentence without dropping the F-bomb, or a person who tries to make themselves look good through their words. Whether it's the person in court who lies with their hand on the Bible, or the kid who simply lies to his mother about brushing His teeth. All of us sin with our words. What we say with our mouths proves that there's sin in our hearts. It shows that we're guilty of sin. That we're slaves to sin. Following the mouth, Paul moves to the feet to make this point, that our relationships prove that we are sinners. Their feet, he says in verse 15, are swift, To shed blood. Notice the imagery. He also says their paths. Are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. So feet. Paths. Way. This is talking about the direction. Of one's life. What he is saying is. In our sin. We want people. Out of our way. So that we can get our own way. Some are willing to shed blood, as Paul says, to murder. Most of the rest of us are much more subtle. But aren't we still pushing people out of our way so that we can get our way? The sin in our hearts results in hurting other people. It wreaks havoc. On our relationship. James puts it very clearly. What causes quarrels. And fights among you. Do you guys have quarrels and fights. Among yourself. Sometimes. What causes it. Paul says your passions are at war. Within you. You don't get what you want. And so you murder. Whether literally. Or through anger. Or other expressions. It's the sin that is in us that causes conflict among us. If we have conflict among us, is that not evidence that we are guilty of sin and under the power of sin? And what's behind all of it? What would be a way to summarize it? The cause of our corruption is that we've cut God out of the equation. Verse 18, Puts it this way. There's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. They've cut God out of the equation. They've not reckoned rightly with God. What does it mean that there's no fear of God before their eyes? In this context, it could simply mean... Remember, what's Paul's major topic, beginning in one eighteen? Through 3.20, he's dealing with the wrath of God. So it could mean that they don't rightly fear the wrath and the judgment of God against their sin. And I think it certainly does mean that in part. But I think there's more. Those who don't fear God don't see God for who He is. As He has revealed Himself in nature, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, or as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. Remember what Paul said. We suppress the truth about God for a lie. Maybe we outright deny the existence of God. We are atheists. We don't believe in God. But more often, people simply create God in their own image so that they can live life on their own terms. Earlier Paul said, no one seeks for God. Some here may object and say, there are certainly people who are seeking God. But Paul says that they're not. So what are people doing when they are supposedly seeking God? I think Paul means that no one seeks God on his own terms, seeks God for who he is, to worship him, to serve him, but instead seek God of their own design to serve their own selfish desires. But that's not seeking God. That's seeking a false God. That is some form of idolatry. Paul says we're all guilty of sin and enslaved to sin. And apart from the power of God outside of us, apart from the Spirit of God drawing us, we will not seek God. And our best deeds are all shot through with sinful motives and actions. We're guilty of sin, we're enslaved to sin. Paul's brought a charge. And he has made his case. Let's now consider his closing remarks in verses 19 to 20. This is the way I would summarize it. If the religious can't be justified by works, no one can. If the Jews, God's privileged people, can't be justified by works, no one can. Chapter 1 Paul established that the Gentiles were sinners who deserved God's wrath. Chapter 2 established the Jews were sinners who deserved God's wrath, and that led to a question at the beginning of chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Or we could ask the question, is there any advantage to being raised in the church? to spending most of our lives in the church? And I think Paul's answer is yes and no. On the one hand, there is certainly an advantage. The Jews and those who spend most of their life in the church have access to the Word of God. And apart from the Word of God, we will not be saved. We have access to God's law, to God's gospel, There's no greater treasure trove than that found in the Bible because it points to God and to the way of salvation. To be in a community that teaches the Bible, that seeks to live a life according to the Bible, that is a great advantage to us. But here's the thing, and this is the point Paul is making. Even with all of those privileges, Nobody is able to perfectly meet God's requirements. None are righteous. No, not one. And if those who have access to the Word of God in the Scriptures can't be righteous on their own, then nobody can. Nobody has a case that they can make before God. Nobody has a comeback After Paul has made his case, there's there's nothing you can say in response. There is no defense for us. So Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Silence. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The real advantage of the law of God, of the rules of God that are laid out in the Scriptures, are to show us that we don't have the ability to meet them. It shows us that we are sinners. That's what the law, in the first instance, is meant to do. To show us our need, to lead us to the gospel. To show us that we have no case before God. To give us the bad news. To prepare our hearts for the good news. Friends, until we come to see that none is righteous in God's sight, we will not be ready for chapter 3, verse 21, of a revelation of God's righteousness apart from the law through grace of God, which is a gift to be received by faith. Until we see that no human being will be justified in God's sight because of our sin, we won't be ready to see the only way to be justified is through the blood. Of Jesus Christ. Received, again, not by works, but by faith. We need to see our need. Do you see it? I'm not simply speaking to the unbeliever this morning. I'm speaking to all of you. We need to see our need. Do you see it? Because you see, the hardest person to convince that they have no case is the person that has the best case. John Gershner once said that nobody can be kept from the saving grace of God except for the person who is deluded, that they don't need the saving grace of God. Ironically, the thing that keeps so many people from salvation is not their sin, but their so-called good works. The thing that keeps so many people from doing what they were created and saved to do, which is to give praise and glory to God, is not their great sin, but it's their good works. The people who do the best works are the hardest to convince that their works are not enough. If we want to receive God's grace, we need to, as Tim Keller says, give up on good works as a means of earning God's favor. We need to, he says, repent of rebellion, but also repent of our religiosity like the older son. In the end, friends, who will be justified? It will not be like the Pharisee who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers are like this tax collector. No, the people who will be justified are people like the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see your need? Do you see your need? Then you're ready to see for the first time or maybe with fresh eyes the way God has provided for your need. Come back next week to learn of it. Do you see your unrighteousness? Then you're ready to receive a righteousness from God apart from the law received by faith. Come next week to learn more about that. Do you see how low you are? Then you're ready to look up to the God who sends salvation in His Son and to stop looking down on other people. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we know that apart from your grace and the work of your Spirit, we do not see things rightly. We do not understand things rightly. And so we pray now that you would help us to see. That you would help us to see how sinful we are. Not so that we can simply grovel in our sin but so we can be grateful for your grace. Help us to see not only our sin, but to see your Son, who made an end of all of our sin. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.